We are meeting with Stephen Ladd, and we're honored. He wrote a, an amazing book, Spiritual Constipation. And Stephen, tell our listeners a little more about yourself, because I will never be able to tell them everything that, that, <laughs> it, that you've done. So. Well, great. Well, thank you, uh, both of you, for the invitation. Uh, I'm happy to be here and look forward to seeing where this conversation goes. It depends how far back you want me to go. I, I, I would say that I, I probably took on the role of a seeker at a relatively young age. I had, a, I had an idea that there was a distinct right and a wrong, black and white. You know, this is a popular idea, but I'm not sure where I picked it up per se, but it was a very persistent idea for me. And instead When did of, you notice it? I can remember this, you know, certainly in the single digits, mm -hmm. you know, certainly then. Um, I saw a lot of suffering, especially non-human animals, which I had an affinity toward. I love the story about uh, worms. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the worms the coming out. The wigglies the, from mm -hmm. being crushed by feet and, and car mm -hmm. tires, yes. And so that caused me a bit of anxiety. So it, it wasn't this wanting to be a good person wasn't so much of a virtuous, moralistic feeling. It was more of an anxiety-driven sense because I didn't really know how to be a good person. And I felt that there must be a right way and a wrong way to treat others to be in the world. And um, my parents were great examples of good people, but, but we weren't particularly religious. So I didn't have any sort of structural foundation for how to act and behave in the world. So I would make up my own rules and I would invariably fail at most of them and then feel bad about it. So this was a cycle that would go through. And I wanted to be a good person. I, and I, looking back now, I see that inherent in that was that I wasn't already a good person. There was some belief that I wanted to become a good person, and that was through doing somehow. I was fortunate in my junior high years to be turned on to teachers like Alan Watts and Ram Das, turned on to the Eastern spirituality perspective. Um, and uh, I, I was, it was a solo journey at that point. N not many peers, say in 1980 in Columbus, Ohio, that I knew of were into that stuff. But it was, a, it was really a foothold for me that has lasted through to this day. And then I was thrilled. I was thrilled to, to learn that in university, you can study this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how to be a good person was uh, basically my thesis. And so I studied philosophy, psychology, and comparative religion. And then I even went on to grad school for a bit until that became a little bit too stuffy for me. And then I kind of dropped out of that and decided to sort of make my way in the world, if you will. Um, my original mentors were in holistic health and fitness, uh, Paul Check and the Check Institute out in California. I started a company called The Human Form. It was just me. And it was basically providing holistic health and fitness services for people, prim primarily strength training and corrective exercise. But then every year or so, I'd be introduced to a new modality that would be beneficial to me. And so then I would share them with my clients. So we got into nutrition, lifestyle design, we got into NLP, we got into hypnosis, meditation, and just kept adding in synergistic practices and uh, you know change psychology, basically, and how I could help both myself on my quest and how I could help others. Uh, then um, we fast forward, say, 32 years. The human form uh, includes my wife as well as a uh, handful of coaches that we employ. We have a facility right here in Columbus that we do strength training, nutrition. Uh, we have massage therapists. We have physical therapists. I also – I do kind of a hybrid service coaching. I, I see people for the body, for physical training, fitness. I also do some somatic work including uh, Be Activated and Reiki. And then I do uh, my transformational 
conversational exploration, for lack of a better term. So you're a shaman. Uh, well, yeah. Columbus shaman. <laughs> sure. You have um, a beard, so it really It's, it's more of a wizard beard than okay. a shaman beard. It's ridiculous, uh, <laughs> as many things are with me. Uh, and that is just... The transformational coaching is really just an exploration into uh, the, orin- the origin of our moment-to-moment experience in life, who and what we truly are, and the freedom that is uh, inherent in that remembering of who and what we are. And so, you know, I, I coach from a, a very non-dual uh, Advaita perspective and, uh, and do so in what I attempt it to be a, a relaxing, um, you know, conversational exploration together, mutual. Looking, I ask clients to, to put on some perspective glasses that are a little skewed from what they're used to, and then just to look at the world through those and to see if it feels truthful to them. Does it feel useful? And does it feel like it's coming from a heartful place? And if it does, then I invite them to continue to explore that for themselves. I'm not committed to anybody seeing the truth exactly as I see it but instead just to come along and join me in, a, in an exploration and to see what we see. So are you a good person? Because you said you were working on that and you said that it came from a feeling of maybe not being good yet. So where are you at today? Well, luckily for myself and all the others in my sphere, I, have, uh, I did mature out of that dualistic right and wrong. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. It, but it was quite strong when I was young. And so I, I, these days, I really feel that our, our inherent nature is good. And that really the question is not how do we become a quote unquote good person, but rather how can we recognize what takes us out of alignment? How do we get lost? How do we get, how do we forget and move into a, a place of division and separation? And so that, and once we understand that, we fall back into our inherent nature, which is good. Well, you need to tell us more now. <laughs> so how do we fall out of alignment? How do we stay aligned? How do we keep going towards the light, <laughs> enlightenment? Right. Well, you know, enlightenment, I think it was Anthony DeMello who had like the most succinct definition of enlightenment, which is um, yeah, yeah, an absolute cooperation with the inevitable. And what I, what I hear in that is that the inevitable is, of course, whatever is right now. And that our ego sense is the resistance to what is. And, and the extent to which we are viewing our life through that lens is the extent to which we will suffer. And it is an opportunity, of course, to learn and to reorient you know, our, our locus of orientation. Um, that's not to say that we don't things, don't, things will always change whether we do something or not. You know, things are always going to change. And that's not to say we don't move in certain directions that we feel pulled to do so from a grounded space, uh, which will have some effect on how things change. But um, in, my, uh, in my experience, the, the fetish with control that we have, at least in this country, is really uh, an ego-driven um, source of all of our suffering. Well. And your book talks about it a little bit, spiritual constipation. And, you know, when I was reading about it, I kind of thought, well, you know, a lot of people criticize the need for control. But at the same time, let's say someone like me, a business owner, there's a certain level of control that's needed to run things. And so so I think maybe there's like two different types of control or is it the same thing? But 
it's needed in some ways too. The same with society. We need a little bit of control, otherwise we have riots and we have shootings and we have no laws. And and the inherently good nature in some people needs some type of control, otherwise they become not so good. <laughs> so yeah, I think there are structures that, mm-hmm. that that are important, and you know, there's I would say there's an absolute view, mm-hmm. and then there's the relative reality view, and structurally within relative reality, it does help to have a framework in which to behave and to keep. But from the absolute view, of course, there uh, there is no control. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the reason that people get so upset when they when it becomes obvious they have no control, like say the pandemic. Sure. Then all of a sudden people are, you know, all up in arms because it's it cannot be denied that we have almost no control. But we don't have any control. Right. That's the reality of life. Exactly. And, you know, you leave your house in the morning and you drive and your life could end because you get in a car accident or you could be disabled or, you know, any number of things could happen that you really have no control. Indeed. And so the question then becomes, I think, the most important question is if we can recognize that we have almost no control. We may have a little bit of influence here and there. Right. We can shove the energy in a certain direction. Sure. But there are hundreds of thousands of variables way outside of our, of our control. Mm-hmm. So the real question is not how can I control things because mm-hmm. the answer is you can't. Mm-hmm. The question is how do I move forth into a world and act from a heartfelt place in which I have no control? Yes. You know, so it's really just the, the, the juice to be squeezed is really in the question, right? You know, it's, it's really funny, I think, the, the whole control conversation, because I think when we are younger, in our 20s, no offense, Sophie, <laughs> I think, and Sophie's wise beyond her age, <laughs> you know, we talked about we're both eternal souls, right? So we really, age doesn't really matter. But um, when we're in our 20s, it seems that, we want to separate ourselves from how our parents did things. We want to better things. We want to live better. We want to think better. And we think that we are going to be able to overcome these these challenges that maybe our family struggled with, and we will control things and mold them and do better job, right? And then in our 30s, we're so tired from this. And, you know, maybe the white picket fence, which I still have, by the way, I like the fence, you know, <laughs> it keeps me safe. But the white f- picket fence and upkeeping the, the 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 presence of some type, right? Having maintaining that house, you know, maintaining a marriage or whatever. We just notice that maybe things are not as easy as they seem to be in our twenties. Then we go through some type of a divorce, right? For me, I did go for a divorce, and I realized that no matter how much work I put into trying to control somewhat the outcome of that you know, that break between me and my ex-husband, you know, trying to mold it back together and trying to save that marriage. No matter how much I tried, I had no control over this. And then once you lose that control and you realize that your life just becomes this chaos and you can't even control your own emotions, then you're just left with this feeling like you're at the edge of the cliff and you're just falling. And there's no, like, how do you protect yourself? You can't, you have to accept that there is no control, really. All you can do is try to live your best life, but ultimately you can't control the outcomes and you can't control people and you can't control even yourself. And so, I mean, shit, it just keeps changing, right? It's like in your 20s, 
you think this way in your 30s, you start to think this way, and then in your 40s, you're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know, I still don't know. So I'm on this journey. I, I don't know. I mean, enlighten me, please. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here? You know? Yeah, I think we all are hopefully on the – well, we're on mm-hmm. a journey whether we are aware of it or not, mm-hmm. <clears throat> even if we've somehow paused <clears throat> that journey. And, um, you know, in some cultures, uh, it is very uh, accepted that at age 50 or 60, you you head off to your spiritual journey. You know, there are more distinct phases in some other cultures that do take into account uh, retreating and going into that spiritual world. As far as control, I think what's important to notice is that things always work out. Yes. In one way or another. Yes. Not always as we had intended. Sometimes rarely as we – sometimes quote unquote better mm-hmm. and sometimes with more challenges and opportunities, but they always work out. And so I think the real, if there is something that can allow us to calm down is to recognize that we've never had control and yet things always work out in some way or another, surprisingly, or, uh, you know, sometimes as we intend, you know, the illusion is if things work out as we projected that we have, we've created that. You know, and the funny thing is, is that whatever you think you want, it's not always the answer. And whatever you're trying to control your life into having, it's not always the answer. And so it's, it's like this, this process of learning how to accept the unknown and how to see the best in whatever's happening, right? Whatever outcome you're getting, how to see that maybe that's okay. Maybe you didn't really need whatever it was that you thought you needed or wanted. Well, the... A vast majority of my coaching clients are extremely successful in in the relative reality world of of business and families, and, and really they have achieved everything they ever wanted, and they thought they'd feel differently. And they don't, right? No. That's where I'm no. at. No, and so they're they're quite confused by that. So what they yes. normally do, because they are generally very um, often type A, but certainly dedicated and they've worked really hard to get what they, mm-hmm. they've got. And they, and it, you know, by all accounts, they've succeeded. So they apply that same technique to their spiritual journey and they're work. finding it actually backfires very <laughs> badly on them. And so often my work is convincing them to say, look, yes, you know, in certain contexts, being hard nosed, working hard toward a goal mm-hmm. you know, is, is very valuable. Yes. Um, but it doesn't necessarily shift over into the context of your soul happiness no. into your spiritual life. So I have to suggest doing less yes. and less and less, almost to a point of irresponsibility, it seems. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy to convince them of this, but I, I often say the only way that you can you know, mess up our work together is by trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And so we, why don't we give this a shot? Why don't we try doing less and less and less? And just why don't we try being before we try doing and see what happens? And if, if, if it goes awry, you can always go back to the grindstone. Yes. There's, there's, no, real, there's no, no real risk in trying something different. And it's so I often talk about, it was Alan Watts again, I believe, that said the difference between sailing and rowing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm rowing. Yeah, I mean, and I'm most sorry. most of us do, and, and often against the current. Yes, against the current. And so instead, oftentimes when we can study the tides, check the winds, and go in that direction, we find that there is an ease uh, to which we can, you know, the Tao. You know, when you realize which way the Tao is going. When a big mm-hmm. thing happens, like a divorce, you know, for me it was you lose all control. You have 
you feel like you have nothing. You've lost your whole house. You've lost your address, your name, your identity, your future plans. You you have nothing. You're just just like I came to this country in 1999 with one little bag of clothes. That's how I was after this divorce, right? And it's it's just this feeling like there's just nothing. And then you have to learn how to, you're so confused and you have to, you know, learn how to be again, who you are. It's like, it's just, but during those times, I think that's where you kind of do what your clients are doing, kind of. The, it, it is an opportunity, right? Yes. And, you know, I had a, a good friend of mine who, who lost a house in a fire, a controlled burn that got out of control. And I remember she was telling me that one of her friends said, oh, how great it must be to have an empty slate. Mm. And she's looking at her burnt house. She was like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's, so it's not, you don't tell somebody that. No. But in retrospect, yes. in retrospect, sometimes being able to start, to start fresh, yes. uh, to, to wipe away yes. that to which you thought. Because if you are attributing who you are to, to being a wife, to do your profession, to your home. Then you're then, a prisoner. Yeah, you're actually, it's imposter syndrome, yes. really, because yeah. it's not, it has nothing to do with who and what you are. No. Um, and that's not to say don't, don't build a life that you love, but it has nothing to do with who and what you are. Right. And that can often in retrospect be, well, had this not happened, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be where I am today. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, no, I mean... I loved my ex-husband, but I still wouldn't change it because, you know, and he came back two years later and said, you know, we should probably just be together again. And I couldn't do it because it's like once you change in a certain way, then you just can't go back into the same mold again. So it's it's a process. I mean, I just, you know, life is just this weird, I don't even know what it is still. Yeah, but it's the best game in town. You know, Probably. I mean, as far as we know, right? Mm-hmm. In, you know, in this incar- in this realm of incarnation, mm-hmm. it's uh, to be here, yes. to be able to experience. And and I often people want to avoid the the quote unquote negative end of the emotional range. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you don't want to hang out and get stuck there, but you're here for a blink of an eye, a blink of an eye. Why wouldn't you want to experience all of it, mm-hmm. the full range of our capacities, and then choose to spend more time on one end than the other. I mean, why not? But why wouldn't you, why would you want to miss out? You know, this is, this is, this to is the chance. To protect yourself, you know, sure. it, it hurts. It does. You go out there, you know, it's hurting, you know. Yeah, there's, there's, there's risk, mm-hmm. uh, but there's no real risk though. True. It, you know, that's, that, that I think is the key, that there's nothing real at risk. But the mm-hmm. one thing that happened after the divorce, and I think that's what I was trying to say, is I felt kind of like, so when we were talking about rowing versus sailing, I felt like I was no longer rowing. I was just being because I was too tired to row. I was too emotionally exhausted. I didn't know how to sail, but I was just not, I didn't care, I think. And for for many years after, I didn't care. And that gave me that sense of detachment and just sort of feeling like nothing bothered me, but I think I'm going back, backwards. Well, you know, the, I, If things yeah. bother me again, I'm like, I don't uh, want to be bothered. I don't want to get angry. I don't want to get frustrated with things. I don't, I don't want to care that much. Mm. So, you know, but then the philosophies, and you said that a little bit in your book, you know, you talk about just all these different books that are out there, right? Because, you know, the self-help, of self-help. section is yeah. so huge and you can read so many different things. And, but it always seems to kind of contradict. So you read one book and they say this, and then in another book they say this, and then 
the end of the day, you're like, my gosh, my head is about to blow up. There are more do rules. I row? <laughs> do I do I just not row and sit in my boat? Do I just do I start to sail? I don't know how. You know, and it's it's just all these books are just sort of so. And I I know you're telling me in there, there's no steps. So just kind of observe. And I think you're you're kind of talking about mindfulness a lot. And but. So what do we do? What do I do? I'm a type A. I need some steps. I, I need something. I, I need something. What do I do? Right. Um, and, and, and everyone, you know, uh, steps are very popular. Yeah. And, and for good reason. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, I understand why people want, you know, there are 12-step programs for addiction. There are 10 steps to building a multi-million dollar business. There are three steps to six-pack abs. And if these oh, things... I need those. Too. <laughs> right. If these things worked... We'd have a lot more billionaire right. ripped people. up abs. We, we would, right? <laughs> yeah. So there, people are trying to reverse engineer that something worked for them, mm -hmm. and then they try to reverse engineer how that happened. Again, of course, ignoring hundreds, probably of thousands of variables outside their control, conscious or not, not to mention timing and luck. Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with- Absolutely. You know, any, and any, karma. Any successful person, right, who says otherwise, yeah. who leaves that out, and it's usually not included in, in the 10 to 10 steps. Pick the right parents. Right, mm. get the right genetics. That's right. usually not included, but you know, you you play the hand you're dealt, mm -hmm. right? And there are things to be done. And and I'm not I'm not against techniques. And most of these books are techniques, are technique oriented, right? Mm -hmm. Because then there there can be steps. Mm -hmm. And there are very few hills upon these days upon which I will die. Now, when I was young, I would die repeatedly for dozens of hills to protect you know ideas and perspectives and such. But I would say this is one that I, I still would perish upon, and that is that an innate understanding of how something works will always serve us better in the big picture in the long run than any technique or protocol. And that is because, and we all know this, we all have our favorite techniques and protocols. And as long as they work for you, I'd say utilize them to their utmost, you know, for sure. But the, the issue, the, the risk with techniques and protocols is that they don't always work. You know, as you're talking about it, it reminds me of me training a new prescriber that's starting out. And that prescriber asking me, well, what do you do for your patients? How do you prescribe? And I say, well, there's not really a protocol there's the different things you can prescribe and you need to know what they do, but every person is different. And so there's not really a protocol, but everybody wants a protocol, right? Right. So, there, there's a bit of an art to the science, right? There's true, the true. art yes. comes in. Mm -hmm. It does. It comes in. And when people, they want control. Yes. That's why they want steps. Yes. So they want, they want control. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I can empathize with that. There's no doubt. However, Techniques and protocols don't always work. And in my experience, they fail me when I need them the most, when, when the stakes are, seem to be the mm -hmm. highest. As compared to an innate understanding of how things work, by things I mean us, our brain, our experience moment to moment of life, that we are consciousness and we can, we can dive deep in that hole as much as we want to. But when we understand who and what we are and how things work, we open up space within us for wisdom to emerge, to have an insight, a sight from within. And we will know what to do in the moment. Once we learn to hear and trust that internal wisdom, I believe we all have a, a GPS, an internal GPS. And when we learn to hear it, we trust it, it will tell us the most appropriate course of action or inaction 
at any given moment, 100% reliable as opposed to protocols and techniques. Well, you say that, and then, you know, I'm with my GPS and I'm trying to hear it and there's the noise and there's the traffic and there's the distractions. And then I don't know, is it my, my stomach gurgling? Is it, is it my spirit guide GPS talking to me? I have no idea. How do I, how do I quiet this, this restless mind that wants to be, you know, this good person and this whatever? And how do you hear your GPS? I mean... Did you write a book about that yet? Because I want to read it. <laughs> it is, I, I would say it is, it is an evolving skill and, mm-hmm. and skill set that contextually, sometimes it's quite easy and sometimes it, it feels more challenging. You know, uh, in the three principles world of psychology, they'll, they'll often use the analogy of a snow globe and mm-hmm. the, the, our mind, you shake it up and that, that's our, when we're full of thoughts, when our thoughts are, are you know, in a blizzard, we're in a mm-hmm. thought blizzard. And the most important thing to do when you're in a thought blizzard is if, if you can, well, first of all, notice you're in one. And then secondly, don't go out and drive in it, if at all possible. And if you absolutely have to drive in a blizzard, you should know you're in a blizzard and take extreme caution. But it's better, of course, to allow that snow globe to settle to, for the blizzard to pass. And so how do we get a snow globe to settle? We don't do anything, we leave it alone and it settles on its own. Steven, you're killing me. How do you tell type A personality, just don't do anything, just, you know, and then people write these books about meditation, and, you know, I try to read it and follow the steps, and I'm like, just like, I can't do this. The one thing I need to be doing, I can't do. I can't silence this brain. I can't. Well, good luck with that, because um, very few people can mm-hmm. for any length of time. And mm-hmm. so uh, what I like to tell people is, you know, I, I meditate every day and I've done it for 30 years because I like it. Mm-hmm. A side effect of meditation is my mind does tend to calm a bit, right? It does. I hate it. I right. hate meditation. And, and lot, <laughs> I can't it, do it. It literally, dri- I mean, there have been new studies you may mm-hmm. that some people literally, it's, it, it drives them insane. Yeah, it I mean, drives me insane. So there are some people who are just not fit for a formal sitting meditative practice. However, what we're really going for, or at least most people, when they attempt a meditation practice is a meditative state of mind which can be attained other ways hundreds of ways okay. hundreds of ways you know you there's you, hope for me oh oh yeah so well you, you already do it you're just, you're just not acknowledging you're not aware of I'm it I'm fighting you, it you go for a walk in nature you're driving yeah. on on the freeway you're in the shower where all all brilliant ideas come from you know the, when there's less on your mind and here's i think the key is that we're not talking about a blank mind i mean that would be impossible you might right? be dead Right. Okay. right. And so, but instead, we're talking about just a little bit of space. So a little bit less on our minds. A little bit less. Oh, no. Just a little bit less. Okay. And then that allow, that space allows But insight. see, here's the thing. Okay, so, so I try to meditate, right? Because it's something I want to do. I want to do astral travel. I believe in that. Okay, so I will like lay down and I'll try to be like, okay, just focus on your breathing. And then I'm like, well, fuck, I don't want to focus on my breathing. That's boring. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the thoughts just kind of go. But there are days that I, that I get the feeling that my body is vibrating and it's not my vibrator on my bed turned on <laughs> it's just my body my you know my energy and i feel sometimes like you know like the hands like i can feel like my hands are ab- above like mm-hmm. they're not exactly inside my body anymore right. but i focus on that and sometimes i'm a little more successful and sometimes i can't do it at all and it drives me nuts <laughs> there's days i cannot calm the fuck down and just lay down and just just 
just focus on that. I want to continue it. I want to get better, but I can't like. <clears throat> well, you know, I, and I I hear you. And uh, for for many many years, mm -hmm. I I wanted to get better at meditation, which of course is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. You know, the purpose of meditation is not to become a rock star meditator. Right. Uh, now, I, I know a lot of meditators who will actually brag about you know, how long they meditate, you know, how often they meditate. And I know meditators who have meditated for 50, 60 years who, if they have a shitty meditation that morning, they're having a shitty day, mm. you know? <laughs> and so it's a competition, like, they're, like at, at least as of right now, meditation is not an Olympic sport. But it should be for well, some people. With enough money, <laughs> yeah, it's all money driven. Yeah. So they, they, they may eventually, but yeah. you know, what is the goal? of our meditation practice and does how does it look? Can it look like walks in nature? Can it look like uh, just regulating your central nervous system? Can it right. look like Reiki and, and the, the different ways that polyvagal theory, you know, how do we get the body involved? So maybe you're more body oriented. I, mm. I talk about that a lot. You know, we can, we can jump on this Ferris wheel it, at any point we want. It's all going in the same mm -hmm. rotation fashion. Mm -hmm. if, if one is more body oriented, then it probably makes more sense, and it's going to be more comfortable to jump in with with body oriented practices. Uh, you know, and as obviously you know, you know, messages go from the brain to the body, and the body to the brain. And, and most studies indicate it's much more heavily from the body to the brain than the other way around. And so, um, jumping into the spiritual quest through the body for many people is is more appropriate. And if you're more inclined towards the intellectual, you know, then you can jump in through through that route. But it's and and they're all gonna end up in the same place, which for me is almost all the way there. I really don't I believe we can do all of our practices with an open heart and with discipline and and and, and be content in that. And each each will take us up into in Buddhism it's called the gate, the gateless gate. So it'll take you up to the gate. But in, in the end I believe, and in my experience, it is then an act of grace. It is an act of allowing for us to to pass through the gate and recognize that there was, was never any gate there in the first place. It's that it's that it's the uh, you know the hero's journey. It's the cosmic joke. We all seem to have to go outside of ourselves to find out who and what we are. And of course, it was always within us the whole time. So we have to come back home and then be like, oh shit. But not really, because that was the path that. You know, it had to happen that way because it did happen that way. It couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. It's just, you know, it's just like you know you're rowing the boat. You're on the boat and you're rowing. And you know you are. But you don't know how to stop that. And you just don't know how to sail. And that's where I'm at. It's like I know this doesn't have to be this hard. I know meditation doesn't have to be this hard. But it's annoying because I don't know how to do it. And the more you tell me how to do it, or the more I try to read about it, the less I really know and the more frustrating it gets. So it's kind of like looking at the, the image, you know, they say like there's like all these dots on there. What is it called? And then they say, oh, see there's what you see there. in it, right? Yeah. What oh, are right. About? And then the harder you try, you're like, I really, I'm trying here. Yeah, you have the, to relax your You eyes. have to relax. It's you have like, to relax. how do you relax a type A person? Mm -hmm. How? Well, sometimes it is, uh, you get so burned out Okay. That you give up. And in that, you know, it doesn't have to happen that way, yeah. but oftentimes it does. Mm -hmm. It can be a rock bottom like it is for an addict, mm -hmm. but it can be, you know, addicted to control, addicted to, you know, um, to that sense of control. And really, I, I like to talk about compassionate curiosity being the engine. 
And, you know, you are curious, you know, you're, you're saying, why doesn't this meditation work? But I'd, I'd say it lacks a little bit of the self-compassion. And so compassionate curiosity is to be like, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Mm. Yesterday, I, was able to I had it. this yeah. feeling yeah. of being out of my body, and today I can't, I can't do it at all. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I wonder what's going on there. As opposed to, and I, I'm drawn this way too, it's like, damn it. I want what I, I want the experience I had yesterday. Is this yesterday is, is even a thing, right? But I'm remembering what happened yesterday incorrectly because we, you know, that memory is skeptical. But I'm remembering this, and I want it to be like it was then. It's so I'm not, not in the now. It's never the same, right? Mm. Right. It's frustrating. I feel like I finally <laughs> made progress meditating when I accepted that thoughts were going to be there. And just like you, Alicia, I was like trying to like, when does it just go quiet? And it never really reached that point. There was just more space between each thought really. But then, but then I could tell that something was going on. You know, there was at one point I, I started to, that's when I would get a lot of like messages. Like I would find solutions to really difficult things that were going on or stuff like that. But I had to kind of accept that I wasn't ever going to be complete silence. <laughs> no, Even what, when I'm yeah. dreaming, it's not complete silence. I'm still thinking. No, one of my uh, one of my favorite teachers is Adya Shanti. Do you know Adya? Um, and he he will admit to being a really shitty meditator, uh, Zen a Zen trained you know student until he started teaching, and he had to come up with different ways to meditate. And they are you know it's not so much manipulation. So you know most most meditations are actually concentration attention exercises. If you're focusing on the breath, I mean these are wonderful. And to go from the what the Buddhists call the ten thousand things to the one thing, the breath, is 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 great. It's a great experience to have that, um, or to, to do a mantra, or to focus on a candle. You know there are all kinds of uh, different ways, but those are generally attention concentration exercises, mm-hmm. as opposed to a meditation where you are just abiding as consciousness. And there are a few little tricks that I tend to like when I find my mind wandering more. Um, I will ask the question to myself, I wonder what my next thought will be. Oh. And that does tends to clear it for a minute because then I'm waiting for it. So I'm not, you know, it's not clear, but I'm, I'm, I wonder what's going to come next. I, I, curiosity. Can, can and, a boy swim faster than a shark, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the office, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so... <laughs> what am I thinking right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, it, you know, playing around and finding your own way through any sort of meditative practice. But again, also recognizing when you are dropping into meditative states, many, many, we all do. We drop into flow, mm-hmm. a flow state. You're at work, and you know you're 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 doing your work, and you and time goes flying by. That I can do, right? That I can do the flow thing. Yeah, and flow because f- I'm not thinking about it. I, it's like if it happens naturally, then it did. Mm-hmm. But if I'm trying to force it, I can't do it, and I get frustrated. So yeah, you can't control it, Mm-mm. right? So there's an allowing and a recognition, but it's annoying. And a curi- so I'm trying and to a control curiosity. it, right? <laughs> exactly. And you'll you know, and you, myself included, you will keep in that struggle mm-hmm. until you. Are tired of it? That's all. You know. You know. You can have that I'll as long as you. Keep growing. Fine. Just keep <laughs> pointing it out. <laughs> <laughs> there's not. There's nothing inherently wrong with rowing, and you'll you, you will row until it doesn't make sense to row anymore, and then you'll forget and and realize, oh, I'm rowing again. You know. I don't know. I think in the book I talked about the the guy with the different shoes, right? You know, the the idea that change 
the idea that change takes a long time. It does. You know, and I sometimes, in my experience, it does. And sometimes, and in, and I think it all sometimes it's fast. It's instant. Right? Yes. It's instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you know. I have people say, I come in and say, you know, they see therapists and, and I get on very well with therapists, you know, um, I generally am so far off of what they're doing that it doesn't, it doesn't interfere in any way. It usually is synergistic, but they'll say, yeah, you know, a therapist told me that I've had, I've had this, this habit, this thought pattern for 20 some years. So it's, it's going to take a long time for me to get over that. Mm-hmm. And I usually ask him, and are you finding that, that information useful? Does that, does that in any way make, does it help? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, just as, as a bizarre example, let's just say that for some reason or another, growing up, you uh, ended up not getting new shoes at a certain age. So your shoes, your current shoes are three sizes too small. And for whatever reason, you got in the bad habit of putting them on the wrong feet. So you've been walking around for the last 10 years with shoes that are way too small on the wrong feet. And your feet kind of feel like shit, but it's just the way your feet feel, okay? It's just how I am. We hear that all the time. That's just how I am. It's how my feet feel. And then someone is kind enough to point out to you, hey, there's a problem down there with your dogs. You know, you might want to get fitted properly and maybe you want to switch them over. And so you, you do and you're like, holy shit, my feet feel fantastic. Mm-hmm. So the question is, you've been doing that for 15, 20 years. You see a new way that makes better sense. How long would it take you to switch over to better shoes? The answer is no time at all. Now, you might forget you're in a hurry, you, you reach into your, your, your closet, pull out a pair of old, but the minute you put them back on, you're like, oh, no, mm-hmm. I know a better way now. And so I find that for myself and most people, once something makes sense, it's effortless. That's why you explain things and yep. you teach people how things work rather than teach them steps which they can confuse them. Okay. Yeah, once you Got see how, once something makes sense, the change is effortless. Discipline, <sighs> discipline has, it does have its use, but it's very short-lived, you know, and, and it wears out. And discipline is great. It, discipline can work well if you're not hungry mm. or tired or horny or what, you know, you know, it, then it usually fails us, you know? So discipline can be used in very short bursts, but I find that truly understanding how things work and who and what we are will... When things look different, different things will make sense. And when different things make sense, you'll do different things. And it will be one of those things where you've probably had this too. I had a client who uh, who didn't notice how much he changed, but his wife did. So, you know, they were driving along and he said, I had the weirdest experience happen. We're driving along and my wife didn't say anything for 10 minutes. And she usually talks a lot. And he said, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm just amazed at what happened back there. And he's like, well, what? what? She's like... Three blocks, four blocks ago, that guy cut you off in traffic. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 he did, I guess. And he's like, she's like, usually, ever since I've known, you would lose your shit over that. And you just kind of, it didn't bother you at all. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did used to do that. And my take on this is simply that he has returned back to who and what he truly, his true self. That, that overreaction, that, he, that anger, that road rage he used to have, wasn't really him. So that when he shifted back into what made more sense, he hardly noticed because he was back home. But as I'm sure you, other people often notice change far, far sooner than the actual client does.
Mm-hmm. I'm still glad I don't have a gun in my car because a few drivers <laughs> per day would be dead probably. Right. right. I, yeah. A little con- population control. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to tell us uh, what's the meaning behind the picture on the book. And let me just say to you that Sophie was like, what do you think about this book? I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> the picture, the picture. Is, I, I really didn't like the picture. And listen, and this is my, I was like, really? So I went back home because I never noticed this before. I went back home, found the book, and I was staring at it for a while. And I'm like, it's something to do with a cell phone. It's like apart from a cell phone. Like, why does it bother her? And then I was like, oh, wait. Oh, it is a a, a, a roll, a toilet paper roll and a... And a I didn't, for whatever reason. You didn't realize. I never it. noticed this until you said that you didn't <laughs> like the the cover. It was more the, like the, every the time I saw it, I was thinking about like oh, I want to change the role or yes. something. Yes, and then I was like, right. oh, I just gotta. And and but I never noticed it. I thought it was effective. some type of a cell phone part. I think because it's metal. Oh, and I some okay. for some reason it stood out to me as a cell phone something, <laughs> and I so I w- had to That's stare funny. at it for a long time, and then I'm like. Oh, you didn't see it. I didn't see it. I, d- I don't know why. It's yeah. hilarious. And was it even was the paper on the right way? Right. That you know the I did paper. Oh. Yeah, that, really, that's always it, the big question. Yeah. That's the existential angst of toilet paper. Right. <laughs> right. But I guess it makes you think about what do you notice first when you and how your brain works differently. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm not as good with details, so I always look at the whole picture. And I'm not as good about like seeing the details. I guess Judging I missed a book stuff. by its cover. Yeah, mm. you don't necessarily judge a book by its cover. Although, from that's what I was good. told, that that's the way books are sold. So, yeah. the spiritual uh. conservation title was a um, it was a debate mm-hmm. between me and my publisher. I, I I should say that I when I first wrote the book, I had all intentions of self publishing, okay. just because I assumed that nobody would be interested in publishing what I was writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I was really fortunate to be turned on. So big shout out to um, to John Mabry at Apocophile Press, okay. which is a very small but but really cool publishing house that really takes on the esoteric topics of religion and spirituality that, that bigger publishing houses just aren't interested in doing. So big, big props to them. Um, you know, he, and he, he educated me. I had different I had different titles, I had different pictures in mind, and he basically educated me on how books are purchased. There's a lot of a lot of psychology with that. I believe it goes front cover, back cover, inside flap, about the author, and then price in that order. Mm. And if the first three are good, it doesn't matter. So he and he told me, you know, people are now buying books on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So you're scrolling. And if you can't capture it immediately the that, attention that the yeah. potential prospect that would be they'd like your that they know what it's about or at least enough right away because I had some esoteric you know name uh, from the book and he's like an unknown author with an obscure title is guaranteed you know to not to not be shared what much. was the old title I cannot remember I know that the tagline was um, a spiritual enema for the spiritually constipated that that, that was the mm. tag. But this right. one says it's just a broad statement, spiritual constipation, which, yeah, it's, it's there. It's it draws you in. For yeah. people who are stuck, yeah. I mean, yeah. and for me, all, all... We're all stuck. Are you kidding me? Right. And all, and all issues of stuckness from my, are spiritual mm-hmm. at the, yes. their foundation. Yeah. So that is where the, the spiritual constipation, you know, um, 
title. And I use that when people ask me what I do. I'll say, well, I work with constipated people. <laughs> and they can be like, what? I'm like, uh, I mean, with life, you know, with... Yeah. The, I double glove right, and I right. get them an <laughs> exam first. Exactly, <laughs> you know. And so it does get some interesting calls, people who don't who don't read the fine print. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so that that is where... And of course, just, you know, the lightheartedness. My, my goal was to was to talk about, you know, a psycho-spiritual perspective that was practical. I mean, how, you know, how does psychology and how does a non-dual spiritual perspective look in, you know, relative reality world to, you know, day to day? And I wanted, but even more important, or at least equally important, I wanted to have it be a little bit lighthearted. Absolutely. Because I had such, I, I've, I've done the strict stuff. I mean, I, I'm the type A too. I mean, I studied Zen because I felt that it was it was the CrossFit of, of of Buddhism, you know, it was hardcore, you know, and so I I, I get that. Um, but the more and more, and the te- the teachers that I most resonate with, and I I've had the the blessing of being you know in person with many teachers, and then of course dozens and dozens of of, of teachings, you know, um, and I I would say that anybody I've spent any amount of time with, I can take something of value from them. That being said. The teachers that I most resonate with are those that laugh easily and often, mm-hmm. because that to me is a sign of freedom, right. true, deep freedom. And you know, and yeah. I think that's why, for example, I don't know for you, Sophie, but for me, I don't click with majority of religions because they are so structured and there's so many steps and instructions. And so I am a little bit of type A, but I also just like to go with the flow and laugh, and most religions are stiff and not funny and serious, Mm -hmm. and there's no room for being you, and everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to chop your wings off so you become whatever they want to mold you into, and I just don't like that. So I I like that you you put together kind of a guide from, studied all the different religions and sort of tried to tell us, okay, here's here's what you can do without the steps, but here's kind of where you can go with this. Yeah, and I I, I took you know, sort of a variety mm. of topics, you know, from freedom to love to meditation mm-hmm. to, and then the gonzo journalism of naked yoga and, you mm-hmm. know, the fight club. Oh, movie, that's what we need know. to do next. Right. Naked yoga. <laughs> naked yoga truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> I really, uh, that, that was my intent is to say, hey, let's together, let's, uh, from this perspective, let's just explore mm-hmm. what this could look like if we took this perspective and thought about innocence and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. What might that look like? And I share what it looks like to me, but again, I'm inviting you know the reader to see what they see about that. Okay, but one more question to clarify the image. Why is there no toilet paper? Does it mean this person was so constipated they used up all the toilet paper? Like <laughs> They were constipated and then they got it all out. Uh, so much so that it used up all the toilet paper. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Or it's just a pandemic and no, you can't get uh, in it. True. <laughs> you know, hopefully they have a bidet. I really connected with the idea of <clears throat> teddy bears. Uh, you talked about kind of like that attachment, you know, when you're little, maybe you have your favorite teddy bear and you're really, you can't sleep without your teddy bear. And then that teddy bear becomes maybe your uh, game, your video game, or then then maybe it becomes your, I mean, blanket or anything. Anything can be a teddy bear that you attach to. And then eventually probably it's your husband, you know, it's your teddy bear that you can't live without. And 
you would rather be dead than be without him. And then eventually you learn like, oh, like maybe I don't need a teddy bear. Maybe I can still live without a teddy bear. Yeah, I think the the real key there is the the misinterpretation of the origin of the feelings, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the young child has the bear, or the blanket, mm-hmm. or the binky, and and they they feel good when they have it, mm-hmm. and they feel quite upset, scared when they don't have it, mm-hmm. right? And as adults, we can look at that situation and see, well, you know, it's not really a problem, but that's not the causal relationship there. The bear is full of stuffing. It doesn't have the metaphysical power to generate a feeling in a small kid. We know that 100% of the feelings are being generated from within that little human and that 0% are coming from the stuffed inanimate object. However, what I refer to as adult teddy bears Mm -hmm. would be things like your spouse, your boss, your health, your your, your wealth, your vibrator. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even your past and your future. The big Tom. (laughs) (laughs) I assume nothing less. Um, And so that would be uh, a misinterpretation Mm -hmm. of the causation of your feeling, for better or for worse, because it it absolutely looks like your spouse or your partner's behavior is irritating you. Mm -hmm. It looks like your boss giving you a promotion is making you feel happy. Mm-hmm. It looks like your dwindling bank account is making you anxious or mm-hmm. that waiting on that health scan from the doctor is making you feel nervous or that mm-hmm. something in the past is making you feel unsure about something today. Mm-hmm. It, it looks that way, but, it, but I'm putting forth that it is not. So it's really fascinating to me because this, this is how it went. So my life has the teddy bears in there, of course. I still have a teddy bear that, that I had when I was a little girl. I don't right. remember being attached to the teddy bear, but my parents say I was, and they found it, and then I, I still have it somewhere. It's somewhere somewhere in my house. Hmm. But, you know, it, it's funny to me because I think my ex-husband was my teddy bear. I was very attached. I was, you know, I thought I would be for the rest of my life with him. I would do anything for him. You know, and then that that structure, that relationship breaks up and then you're left with this, you know, huge pain and and going through the withdrawal process. So then I connected like a relationship almost to an addiction, right? Because it's it's, um, so devastating when you can't have your drug and you have no control over your drug. In fact, you have more control over buying a drug because if you have money, you can buy the drug, but (laughs) nothing is going to keep that person with you if they're not in love with you. So... Um, so, so then I went through this 10 year period of trying to find the next teddy bear, right? And none of the teddy bears fit with me because I'm weird. Okay. But, you know, I went through this attachment and detachment process and it was insanity. You attach for a little while, then you have to detach because the person doesn't fit either. They break up with you or you break up with them. And... I was so tired of it. I hated the process. I hated going out. I hated dating. And I would verbalize it to people. I would be like, I just hate this attachment, detachment process. I don't want to fall in love again. And I would say it out loud. Didn't want to fall in love, right? Met someone, started dating. I was like, okay, maybe this is my next teddy bear. Mm. And then while dating that person, I kind of run into somebody that I like fall in love uncontrollably and I can't be with the person at all. And just that shatters me. I'm like, I can't understand. I can't control the feeling. I'm dating this person. And so so then I go through this process of maybe a few years of like the teddy bear was an attachment 
to someone that I can't be with, an unrequited mm. love, right? But I am out of that process too now. I realized that the feelings I was feeling, like you said, they don't come from that person, right? So the love that I'm feeling is not coming from that person. It's coming from within me. So therefore, this imaginary teddy bear is not really there. I am over here feeling all this love just all by myself. So now I don't have a teddy bear, and I'm still a little wobbly on this. I, I just feel like I don't have a teddy bear. What do I do? I, I don't know still if I'm comfortable with this. But, but I mean, I'm okay for right now. I'm, I'm, so every day is kind of like this question mark in my head. Like, am I still going to relapse and kind of like think about that person that I can't be with? And every day I'm kind of like, huh, by the end of it, okay, I didn't think about it today. Mm. Not thinking about it, still thinking about it, but I'm noticing I'm not spending that amount of time thinking about something that doesn't really exist, right? So I don't have a teddy bear. I don't have a teddy bear. It's weird. It's weird. What do I do here? How do I survive this metaphysical teddy bear crisis? Well, when it, (laughs) I think when it comes to people, yes, you know, uh, for better or for worse, we think that the, the the person is causing us to feel loved yes. or causing us to be irritated as shit because they're not right. doing the dishwasher properly, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it might be. But in reality, in my reality, uh, they don't have the power to do any of those things. So it, as far as the love is concerned, you it, it can be a mirror. So the person is mirroring back to you. And it's it's easier with some individuals for you to feel that, for you to notice that and see that. But it really has nothing truly to do with that person. And the feelings that are being generated have nothing to do with anything external, but rather have to do with the thoughts that we're having about those external objects, be them people or circumstances. And this is, um, I often will use the analogy of um, air traffic controllers, for example. I mean, everybody, most people would agree as a fact that air traffic controlling is a very stressful job. I mean, it's usually in the top three or four, you know, in the world. And it's just accepted as a fact. However, the interesting note is that when they've done surveys of air traffic controllers, true, 85% would label it as a stressful job, varying levels of stress. But there are 10 to 15% of people who do not label it as stressful. And as a matter of fact, some, it's a minority, but not insignificant, even label it as calming, relaxing, zen-like. And so what that means to me, quite clearly, is that air traffic controlling is not an inherently stressful situation. All situations are neutral. And then we, layer upon that, are thinking about it. And our thinking generates our feelings. So feelings are shadows of thoughts. They have nothing to do with the external environment, be they situations or people or the past or the future. You know, it's all our thoughts which generate our feelings. Well, and I thought about that. Do thoughts generate feelings or do feelings generate thoughts? Is the egg first or the chicken first? I don't, I still don't know. So I don't know if thoughts precede feelings, but when I was thinking about it, I thought about, let's say, an olive. I think you mentioned you hate olives. I do too, so I relate. <laughs> but I didn't have any thoughts about olives until I ate them. So, and I decided, oh, I hate it. Um, so I 
sometimes I think maybe it's a feeling that comes first and then the thoughts after that, because now I have thoughts about olives, but before I didn't know anything about them. So I didn't, you see what I mean? So I don't know. I am kind of torn on what comes first, but does it matter? I mean, I'm not sure it matters that much as long as what we recognize is that the nature of thought. So, you know, I I talk about positive thinking in the book Mm -hmm. and we've all done everyone in the self-help improvement world. Maybe most people in general, have mm-hmm. tried some form of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it can be useful, like all tools, it can be useful, and I encourage people to utilize it as long as it is. However, positive thinking, uh, even when it does work, is a hell of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. We have, what, fifty to 70,000 thoughts a day? And so if you're going to monitor, because you have to categorize them. A thought comes in, and you have to categorize it as positive, neutral, or negative. And then you have to keep the positive ones. You have to, the neutral ones are probably context dependent. So you got to watch those. And then the negative or bad thoughts, which tend to breed like rabbits, they're the ones that have to be transformed, transmuted, altered in some way, reframed, et cetera. So it's, it's a tremendous amount of work to do positive thinking, even when it does work. Whereas instead of working, instead of paying so much attention to the content of thought, I would say that the nature of thought, so this is application versus implication, right? So instead of applying positive thoughts, the implication of understanding the nature of thought is where the real freedom comes. And I would say there are at least three fascinating aspects of the nature of thought. Number one is that it's transient. Thoughts come and they go. They always do. They come back often. Most of them are repetitive, but they come and they go. And how long they stay often depends on how much we grab onto them or push them away. And it's usually paradoxical the way that works. The other one is they come from an unknown origin. Like we have no idea where thoughts literally come from. There are people who study the brain their entire lives as scientists. And if you push them, they'd be like, yeah, it's the hard problem of conscious. We don't really, I mean, they can talk about synapses firing, but where thoughts really come from, except for the shower, again, good thoughts come in the shower. Brilliant thoughts always come. But besides that, they come from an unknown origin and they're transient. And then the third one, which I think is the most important and seems counterintuitive, is that they are impersonal. Mm. They're not about you. They feel like they're about you because they happen in your head, which is a mistake where we think we, we live, right? As if we live in here and looking out through our eyes, that whole, that whole thing. But so they're impersonal, they're transient, and they come from who knows where. So understanding the nature of thought can oftentimes take away and relieve some of the importance and stress we put on them. So you have a crazy ass thought and you're thinking, well, I mean, we don't know where it came from. It'll leave and it's not about me. Mm. That is where the freedom, instead of, instead of messing around with the content of the thought, understand what, how thoughts work and the, the, the nature of them, I, I believe, is where that freedom then comes. And you can still have, people will say, when will I stop having these negative self doubts? I'm like, well, what if you never do? I mean, they're like, well, you're a really shitty coach. I'm like, no. I mean, well, yeah, maybe, but not because of this. I mean, like, what if every day, twice a day, you had a negative self, you know, self-doubting thought, and you're like, oh, there's my self-doubt, and just moved on? What if you knew it wasn't even about you? I mean, you're, I would contend your thoughts don't even know that you exist. They're just flowing through your consciousness. And what if they never stop, but yet... I mean, they're still in the car. You're going, you're going above my level of understanding here. Okay, we got to dumb it down a little bit. Okay, 
Yeah. Like, okay, my faults are so my faults. Where are they coming from, really? I mean, what is it? The aliens, the the cosmos, we don't know yet, but right. you're telling me my faults are not my faults. Mm. Yes, oh, wow. I am. Yes, indeed. I, you know, um, you got to dumb it down a little bit. <laughs> well, this, you know, th- these kinds of explorations really are beyond the mind, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that sounds esoteric and woo-woo. And it, it, it is, I mm-hmm. guess, if you want to label things uh, as I, such. I'm wondering now if I have the same shoes on or one's <laughs> different than the other. You're like, you have me all, you know. Yeah, and, and, that is where, and that is where we were talking, I think, before we started recording, is that, is that beautiful place of confusion and being calm and confused. You know, I talk about in the book, being dazed and confused is not, you know, not comfortable or really productive. But being calm and confused, because confusion to me, means we're on the edge. We're on the edge of the known and the unknown. And the unknown is where all potentiality lies. So we can stay in the known. It's safe. We know it. And it'll still change. But, but we, ha- we sense some sort of control over the known. But, it, but the beauty, all potentiality lies in the unknown. So when you, when you breach that, that gap there, there's going to be some confusion. And if you can remain calm, instead of saying, I don't know what's going to happen, you can say, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, same exact words, but a very different intention. Mm -hmm. And when we can do that, when we can calm down and sit in confusion Mm -hmm. and be curious as to what's on the other side, Mm -hmm. that's fun. Mm -hmm. And it it propels us toward freedom. You know, I, I find it really kind of fascinating also that we don't realize that we not only have this physical world, right, this material world around us, but that the thoughts and the mental constructs that we have about our life and who we are, they're actually like almost you can touch them. That's how hardcore they are wired in our brain. So I remember having that other identity as a wife, and I remember how shattering the experience of divorce was because it wasn't just that one person wasn't with me. It was that whole identity, that whole mental structure was gone. It was like looking at a house that, you know, is in shambles and you don't know, you can't put it back together anymore. You can't ever have the same house again. And I think this is what we go through in life quite a bit. And people don't realize that these mental structures, they're transient, just like the thoughts, just like but yeah, it's mind blowing. It's that's all. I I just I just feel like it's such, you know, we build these things and then they become outdated and then they shatter and it's so painful to go through these transitions. But I mean, that's the nature of life. But but it's just like you get attached and then you, ugh, you know. I do, and it's you know it's exciting and and frustrating, yes. and horrible and beautiful, yes, all, all at one time, all of it and, at the same time, and this this idea. What I found helpful years ago was studying, and this is not new science. This is like, I think in the 70s, they, it became pretty clear, as much as science can be clear, mm-hmm. that you know, we all live in our own separate realities, mm-hmm. that we are not living in our skulls and our eyes are not windshields and we're walking around taking in data. Mm-hmm. No, well, we're taking in so many tens of thousands of bits of data per second and we are filtering them through our own unique system. And then we are rendering our best guess scenario as to what's out there. Yeah. We're not seeing, you and I aren't seeing the same thing differently. We're actually seeing different things. 
And there, well, we, the, every relative reality will be different to some degree. Now you'll find commonalities and some that fit pretty close and you won't get into the details, into the weeds to realize you actually see something different than me. But when you recognize that we are all seeing and experiencing and guessing, we're hypothesizing what's out. There is something out there, but we're guessing as to what it is. We have these blind spots and, we're, and the mind is filling them in. That's what the mind does. And it, it, that's that way with, with our past as well. And so when we recognize this, it doesn't, you can see where it'd be a real shit show. If everyone has their own reality and you're trying to get some united project done, it could be. But if we, if we all recognize this, and we're not try, I'm not trying to convince you and Sophie of my hypothesized reality, I'm saying, hey, what do you see? Here's I, what I see. I see a shit show out there. If you're not <laughs> seeing a shit show, then I don't know what reality you live in. But it's, everybody's confused. Yeah. Everybody's mm -hmm. confused about everything. Which, again, it, it is, is a perfect situation because we're, we're, we're on the edge again. Now, hopefully it can be done without a lot of violence and suffering. I mean, it doesn't have to go that way, I don't think. But being confused, people think being confused is inherently a negative state. And I'd say it, 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 it is the gateway. It is a gateway into the unknown and making the unknown known. Steven, wow. come on. <laughs> that was a naked truth. <laughs> Again, I think there's an absolute view yeah. that that is true. And then there's a relative reality view, which I still feel drawn to act from the heart, to act with empathy and act with compassion. And I would say the most, quote unquote, enlightened people that I know who have come to that same conclusion still spend most of their lives in service of others, even though there are no others. You know, it's an illusion. And therefore, when you're helping another, you're helping yourself. It's, you know, we're all one as it is. So it still makes sense. And you talked earlier about that witnessing perspective. And that witnessing perspective can be really useful for some people on their journey for a certain amount of time and in certain contexts. But getting stuck there ends up feeling detached, ends up feeling like you don't feel anything anymore. You know, so it can be a protective place to go. Um, it can be uh, useful if you use the Whitney's perspective to kind of see a broader picture. It can be very useful that way. But to get stuck there, or to get stuck in the absolute view of that we are all one, there is no such thing as, as suffering, and, and, and to get stuck there, those are the folks that um, are lovely people, but their feet hardly touch the ground when they walk and they don't mm -hmm. pay their bills and they end up on the streets. You know, so there is, there is this play, right, between the absolute and the relative. They're not, they're not really different, right, but, but there's a play in between. And how, do I, how, do we, how does one walk that line? How do, you have, how do you have a foundational understanding that we are all one and that we are all consciousness? And at the same time, I really don't like some people. You right. know? I like, I really don't. So then I have a hard time thinking like I'm one with this person. Yeah. You know, like I don't know. Right. Well, the, you, you know, know that, that subconsciousness or the consciousness that really, really did they have to show it like that? Right. You know? Well, I, it's interesting. I was, I, I was coining a phrase called futu. Mm -hmm. So F-U-T-U, futu, <laughs> which is of course a comment of fuck you and thank you. Yes. So, and it, so it, I, I call it the paradoxical mental emotional state of being triggered by someone mm -hmm. and simultaneously feeling gratitude yes. for them showing you where you are not yet completely free. I hate it. Mm. I, I don't know. like it. So you, so you like, the so you, people you go, annoy me. I know. Like that, right? I know. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, you know, you will, I, I think all of us will be presented with, with voodoo people, with the people mm. and to show us where we are not yet free until, yeah. until we are. 
So it won't. It will only. We'll only get it as we need. Isn't it. there some witchcraft mm. or something for the Fudu people? I mean, I'm still trying to find a shortcut here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone wants to hack it all. Yes, right? and right. and it's really interesting with the spiritual journey as I see it. Is you can't hack one step. It's a one step. It's off a cliff. Yeah, you can't really hack that. No, mm. you've got and you know as you talked about you know free falling. Mm-hmm. And you can dive. You yeah. just turn into a dive. When you, it's when you're grasping for air, trying to hold on, and there is no there is no grounding. Mm-mm. There's no real grounding to grab onto. And when you can become comfortable with that and play and do your little flips in the air and oh, yeah. and dive, all of a sudden it can become uh, playful. Well, and when we were talking about mental constructs and how strong they are and how when something happens to change it suddenly, you 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 feel uprooted. You know, I, I describe myself as a plant that was pulled out of the ground and people are shaking it and I'm not replanted yet. And I'm just this state of uh, confusion, just, just utter chaos. But I remember also having this very vivid experience of when I found out that my ex-husband, you know, had feelings for someone else, I found out through an email kind of a thing. And I remember sitting there and it got dark in my eyes. It was light out. And I felt like I was falling. I was falling Mm -hmm. off of a cliff. And it was just this immense feeling, you know, physical feeling that that I got. And I was, you know, kind of dizzy afterwards. But, you know, we we think that drugs or, you know, or other things are going to create these these uh, strong emotions or feelings or or, or even almost like physical-like experiences, but it can just be extreme change that happens so quickly, you know, something that shattered my mental construct. I mean, I would have never thought in a million years that my ex-husband would have feelings for someone else, right? Because we were so good together. But then, you know, you see it in front of you and it's just like shatters that mental construct, you know, and you're just, you can never be, the same person you were a minute ago before seeing this. You know, it's... Yeah, the central nervous system just shuts it down, right? It's weird, it's right? It's a fight or flight. It's a version right? of fight or flight, going black, going dark, mm-hmm. shutting down. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a protective mechanism that, mm-hmm. you know, we the body takes care of us as, mm-hmm. as, it, as it can. The life, the way we know it, the way we are taught is not what it is. And so when you're going through these experiences, you're, you just have to figure it out from scratch again. Like, what is my life now? Who am I? You know, and and here's the thing, you know, we are taught every day that there's a teddy bear we must get, you know, that's on the commercial, the teddy bear, you know, the teddy bear version number five, you know, the teddy bear, whatever. And we are always going after these teddy bears. And so, like, I just feel so weird because I don't have a teddy bear. I don't want a teddy bear. I don't like what what am I supposed to be doing right now? Because because a person type A always needs to be doing something, but it's like. I don't have something that I need. I, I, I'm not needing anything. I don't want anything. So what do I, like, what next? what's next? But, 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 you know, like, what, what am I supposed to be doing here? I, I'm here on this earth. I know, right. I know, I know, I know. Right. But, but what's, like, I, I'm in a weird place. The meaning place. of life. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, this is, I, I, this? I don't think this is uh, an uncommon place to be. Yeah. And, and I think what often happens is as we, as we start to recognize how things work and, mm-hmm. and that you don't need teddy bears, teddy bears mm-hmm. are illusory. Yes. No one or no thing can make you feel a certain way. And so therefore that easy hit mm-hmm. is no longer even what you want. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so instead of being, so I often will talk about, you know, when you are trying to prove, mm-hmm. when you are at, out of desperation 
people try to find teddy bears to mm-hmm. feel better. And that desperation does give you purpose, mm-hmm. gives you a lot of things to do, and yes. you can go after it. Um, and, you know, it, it eventually comes back and bites you on the ass, um, hopefully, if not this lifetime, who knows which one, as opposed to being drawn forward from inspiration. And what can happen is when those, when those trying to prove and be worthy and desperate feelings diminish, they're, they're such a fireball of, of, of movement and action-oriented that when you drop out of that, it can feel like there's a lull that you don't really, what's going to motivate me now? If I don't have to prove myself through my career, through my partners, through being a good person, what's left? And what I find is that it's usually a little subtle at first, but there is a much deeper inspiration-based motivation that will come forth. And that is simply, you know, it's simply being aware of it. And be, you know, there are some folks who, who get stuck, who's like, nothing really matters. There's no me here, really. I'm an illusion, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna live in my parents' basement for the rest of my life, because what's the point? You know, there's no, it, you can get stuck there as well. And, the, and it's very hard to get through to those folks until they eventually, eventually, everyone comes out of it sooner or later. But I think, I think it sounds like you're in a phase, could be in a phase, where you're just waiting for that more, that, that truer inspiration motivation instead of grasping for the desperation because you know again every advertiser alive will tell you you know you need this new car what you need is a new car yeah and a teddy bear or or detergent i mean it's ridiculous you'll be a better person if you use this detergent and we just know when you finally realize that's not true and you finally realize that you are already whole and complete as you are then it's a then this idea of okay now that i know i'm whole and complete what Am I, what motivates, what do I want to do, be, or have? And then it's a clean goal. I talk about dirty goals and clean goals. And dirty goals are the goals that, that you want. You set up a goal in order to get a feeling. Mm-hmm. If I get this, I will feel this, right? And we know that doesn't work, but for a minute or two, right? Mm-hmm. And that minute could be a year, but it, it eventually fades and you need the next thing. Those are what I call dirty goals because you're attaching a feeling to some acquisition, instead of a realization model, which is you are already whole and complete. And from this place where I don't need a teddy bear, I don't need anything, but what would be really cool to do, to be, or to have? And then you can go after that, that thing or person. And the good news is, number one, if you quote unquote fail, you're still good. And number two, I find that the, the percentage of times you are successful in getting, doing, or being goes up because you're not weighted down with the dirty goal of it, of it giving you a feeling. You're doing it because it makes sense to do. And so that's the, that's the inspiration versus the desperation foundation. And it sounds like you may or may not be somewhere in there. Well, thank you for that. Yes. It's just... It's just so complicated, so complex. It's simple, but it's also complex. It's so yeah, it's so stupidly simple that our minds can't wrap. So our minds have to add complexity to yes. it because if it were that simple, then everybody would be doing it, right? Right. Well, yeah. if it were that simple, I would be able to figure it out. Right. I, I would feel. I mean, we make up these things about it, yeah. so our minds instantly start to add complexity. We, I call it intellectual masturbation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just settling, yeah. being. And see what it's like to be mm-hmm. before we do. Did you notice, and I don't know if 
either you or Sophie noticed, but I feel sometimes like universe has a really funny sense of humor and the universe is teaching you things and giving you lessons sometimes in really funny ways. And I don't really have examples right now, but sometimes I'll like be like thinking about something. And I'm like, wow, you know, that taught me this, but it was in a such funny way, you know? Oh, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, the cosmic joke, right? right. The, the punchline to the yes. cosmic joke is that you're it. Yeah. You can't not be it. All mm -hmm. your struggles, all your searching, all your striving, all your hacking, you're already it. Mm-hmm. And you know the and you eye. You don't even notice. You right. don't even know. You're like this. the eye that can't see itself. Right. I mean, you can't. And so that's the kind so of the basically you're joke. God, but you can't see it, right? Oh, because yeah. you're one with God, so you're God. So you're, you're, we're all the same, right? Oh, I, I, but we can't I, I see would it. Say so. Yeah. But we can't see it. Right. So and th stupid. That, that's the joke, and that you know there are some beautiful. So I want to do astral travel, but I'm astrally traveling right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, right? yeah, yeah. There's no real evidence that we're not in a matrix simulation. Right? No. I mean, there's all. Yeah, we just yeah. don't know. But again, uh, those things can be really fun and interesting to explore because mm -hmm. in, in our mind, our, the intellect. I I don't want to downplay the beauty of our intellect. I mean, almost everything we see here in the world was built because someone had an idea, and. Mm -hmm took action on. I mean, it, the intellect is a wonderful tool. It's just not, it's not, not the greatest tool for, say, spiritual journey. I mean, there are some, there are some schools, you know, the Zen koan and stuff where, where, you know, you meditate on an insolvable problem, you use your mind, so it implodes your mind. So you can use the mind to implode in on itself, and you can do it that way. And then there are devotional things where it's all about, I mean, there are lots of ways to go about it. But the intellect, when used, when used as a tool, in the proper setting is fantastic. It's just that in these sort of quests, it has uh, limited limited value. Mm -hmm. Well, because life is so practical and we have to make money and we have to pay bills. And so like, how do you, you know, combine your desire perhaps to grow as a, as a, as a person, as a human being, connect to God, connect to the universe and still pay your bills? You know, like mm -hmm. how do you not end up detaching completely and living in your parents' basement? How do you, you know, how do you keep going? How do you, I mean, how do you combine the two and somehow make them, how do I not move into the mountains <laughs> and become a shaman? Right. How do I still live here in Columbus and without exactly meditating because we know I'm not so good at that, but how do I grow? What do I do? Yeah, well, again, I think it's, as Ram Dass always, mm -hmm. everything is grist for the mill. Mm -hmm. So every, every interaction that you have, and I, I'll often tell people, look, just do a do an as if exercise. We just when you go to the grocery store this time, act as if you knew it were true mm -hmm. that we are all one, mm -hmm. that the person you're interacting with at the checkout is you, and that yeah. you are. And really, you are, there's and, a lot of weird people out there. Yep, yes, <laughs> that even even better. Okay, they're manifesting something in some different way. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, we're all waves of the same ocean and waves are all different, different sizes, different, you know, et cetera. And what if it were true? And, and just for that 30 minute visit, how does it feel to use that perspective? How does it change the way that you engage? How might it affect the way that person engages with you? And does it feel useful? Does it feel truthful? And does it feel like it comes from your heart? And if it feels like that, that's how you can really use, I mean, you know, going away, very few people need to go away. Into the mountains. It's in a cave. Yeah. Right. Okay. And most, I think, go crazy who do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a lot of that is escapism. Mm -hmm. And instead, you, we can use every single encounter. Uh, we can use being alone and being lonely, you know, as, as, as grist for the mill.
you know, here in in Columbus or wherever it, it might be. So you're saying that maybe we are exactly where we are supposed to be in our lives, exactly what we're supposed to be doing, because whatever the challenges are that we have are exactly the challenges that are best for our soul to grow. That feels true to me. Okay. It does. And, it, and we couldn't be anywhere else because we're not. Right. Mm. Right. This is, the, this is the inevitable in this moment. And it will likely change in the next moment. And we will not be the same people that we are in the next moment. We, we couldn't be. Even if we tried to maintain, that's a control sense too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be a challenge. I'm going to try to feel as if I'm one with the checkout person next time I go to the well, grocery have, store. Have fun with it's it. It's going to be tough. Yeah, have fun. The, 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 do I embrace them? Do I tell them anything or just, just you know, mental image? But definitely do I hug them at the end? Pick the oddest, pick the one who's most different from you. Yes. Mm. That, 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 that might okay. be interesting. And, and engage in that way and see, yeah, see what, I have no idea what will come up mm-hmm. for you, but it might, it, but, but it'll be interesting. It'll, yes. it, if you're curious. Or a little bi-curious, you never know. <laughs> right. It depends on the day. Oh yeah. And, and the yeah. checkout person, mm-hmm. right? Right. So <laughs> indeed. So, um, that way it can be fun because meditation, your practice sounds miserable. Yeah. Whereas how, I hate it. how can you, yeah, how can you have some fun yeah. with exercises like that? You know, how can you have a little bit of fun like that and see what comes of it? Because who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Beautiful. I like it. We'll do a follow-up episode on what happens while you're practicing this, going to the grocery Being store. Being one with or... the checkout person. <laughs> it's going to be fun. I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> We so enjoyed talking with you. Um, we usually ask our guests, what is their naked truth, which means their wisdom for the day or something that, a quote that they've heard that rings true for them. But I feel like we had a lot of naked truths today. I know. Like the whole episode is just one naked truth. Yeah. If this, if this <laughs> Without were, us getting if, naked. If this were Zoom, yeah, we'd yeah. be in trouble, right? Uh, <laughs> with all the nakedness going yes. on. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Um. I can start. Yeah, go ahead. And, so, uh, Sophie, we'll, we'll start with a naked truth. Yeah, and it can be literally something that happened. It could be from the episode. It could be anything. So my naked truth is kind of s- simple and small today, but to resist less. That's my that's my naked truth. That's my goal. That's really it. That just came to me during this conversation. Like resist, stop trying to control things mm-hmm. and just let it. I mean, do what I can do, but not don't go over the top. So I think my naked truth would be I want to sail, not really sail. I don't know that I want to sail like the literal the ocean. Uh, activity, <laughs> but I would like to sail in my life. I would like to feel effortless as I am going through life. And there are moments that I feel like that, but a lot of the times I'm rowing. I'm like, oh, no, I'm back to rowing. No. You know, but well, I, I think I think it, it, knowing when you're rowing is the key. Knowing when, mm-hmm. when the snow globe is flustered. Oh, I'm rowing right now. I'm right. rowing. So mm-hmm. I would say keeping with the, with the, with the water theme, mm-hmm. I would say um, one of my favorite quotes by Leonard Cohen. Do you know Leonard? You know, he's poet, Buddhist, musical genius. He said, until you become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. Yeah, I want to be the ocean, and I'm seasick quite a bit. <laughs> I'm going to be sitting with that one for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for oh, being here. Oh, it's been my absolute, my absolute pleasure. We'll have to ask you to come back, seriously, after I, like, hug all the checkout People in the grocery stores. I'm going to be the one responsible for that. They, they will. They will have something on the news. There's this weird lady <laughs> hugging, hugging everybody, everybody in the stores. 